Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert, Professor Marcia M. Gallo. Professor Gallo is the author of No One Helped, Kitty Genovese, New York City, and the Myth of Urban Apathy. She is a professor emerita of history at the University of Nevada and teaches courses on race, gender, and sexuality. Let's hear what she has to say about the Kitty Genovese murder. Hi, Marcy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Rebecca. It's great to be with you. So before we dive into the Kitty Genovese murder, I wanted to ask you about your connection to the murder and what initially drove you to research the topic. Yeah, it's a great place to begin. Um, I've been sort of um, enthralled, uh, fascinated, certainly paying attention to the story of Kitty Genovese since I was a 13-year-old in Wilmington, Delaware, in 1964, when the murder happened. Um, I have never forgotten the image that became so, so prevalent. Uh, It was almost like a portrait of her. And having grown up Catholic and also am Italian-American, I was struck by how much her image reminded me of a holy card. Um, there's this very um, serious look on her face, which turns out not to be how she really was in real life. She was the life of the party. But there was this very serious sort of soulful gaze that came out probably from a magazine or a newspaper. And I was transfixed by it. And I wanted to know who this was and why she was getting all this attention. And then, of course, very quickly learned that she had been killed and then learned that none of her neighbors had helped her. And for me, growing up in a small city with these dreams of, you know, a, a grown up life in New York City where I could be free and independent, the idea that someone wouldn't help you if you were in trouble 
in the in the horrible way as I learned more and more that had happened to her sort of never left me. It became this cautionary tale. And frankly, I think that that's in in some ways how it was intended. Um, it became about, you know, urban apathy. And, and so her image, her beauty, um, and her youth really, and of course, her femaleness, right, really stuck with me as a, almost like a, a, um, a caution of uh, uh, this, be careful, be careful. You know, your dreams may not be what you think they should be, be and look wow. what happened to her. Can you tell us a little bit about Kitty and her life? Uh, yeah. Where did she grow up and, and what was her personality like? She was a, a ball of fire. She was a tiny um, but very strong spirit. She was a tiny person, but a very strong spirit. Um, she was only about five feet tall, if that, and was slender and dark hair, dark eyes. The oldest of five kids, she grew up in Brooklyn, uh, Italian-American family, um, did the things that were expected at that time of uh, a, a woman who, you know, she was she was born in, in, in 1935. And so she graduated from high school, which was a big deal. Um, and then she started to think about what was she going to do? She got married. That didn't last real long. Um, and then she started to work clerical jobs and then became the manager of a bar. And found to her surprise that she really loved the social aspects of being in, in, in a bar and loved the management aspects. And so decided that that was going to be what she did. Now, she was young when her story ended, right? She was only 28. So she had really just gotten started. Uh, but the thing that's interesting to me um, and also resonates in my own life is that not only was she independent and strong-willed and fun, she was also very attached to her family. So she never broke with her large Italian family. And even when she left Brooklyn and moved to Queens, she stayed connected and, and spent quite a bit of time with her her brothers and sisters and her parents. So she had this interesting mix of striking out on her own, but never severing those important family ties. Now, I'd like to jump for, forward a bit and uh, have you take us through the night of her murder before she came across uh, her attacker. How did she spend her evening? Right. So it's the night of uh, March 12th, right, 1964, and she was doing what she did almost every day. Um, she was at the bar, you know, um, sort of commanding commanding the bar and the crowd there, left around 6 p.m. as she often did and went out to dinner with a friend, came back a few hours later to help close up um, and then began her drive home. Um, the bar was located in a part of Queens that was much further out than where she lived in Kew Gardens, right, Mo out further in the borough. Um, and it was sort of in a changing neighborhood, right? 
it was in Hollis and Hollis had been a sort of a working class African-American community. It was starting to shift a little bit. So she had a real mix of people in her bar, um, but still probably predominantly working class and white were the were the patrons in in Ev's 11th hour. Interestingly, Ev's was owned by a woman who rarely, if ever, showed up, um, but she had hired Kitty to to be the manager. And and so um, Kitty was the face of Ev's 11th hour bar. And I always remember, I always think of it sort of like cheers, you know, where everybody knows your name and you walk in the door and they're like, hey, you know, hey, Christina, how you doing? Um, and she loved that. She loved the, the camaraderie. Um, the people who knew her there told reporters after her death that she kept the place lively, but also loved to talk about art and politics, um, history. So she had this wide ranging sort of interests and, and brought that with her to work. Um, so that night she's there at closing up. And then, and this is the other thing that struck me as uh, a 13 year old and that I still love about her is that she then goes and gets into her red Fiat. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> right there, you got to pause and say, wow. <laughs> Dream car. <laughs> right. And for a woman in 1964 to be riding around, I mean, it's like, it, it's like right out of a Fellini movie. I mean, it's amazing, right? So, She's loving her her car, loved it, loved it. And she goes out, gets in her car, starts her drive home, which usually took her about 20 to 30 minutes, depending on, you know, the flow of traffic. And that's unfortunately when she comes to the attention of Winston Mosley. Yes. And, and could you give us a little background on him? Uh, who was he and, and what led him to cross paths with Kitty? Yeah. You know, Mosley, um, who also was... 29. So we're talking about two people who hadn't even reached their 30s yet, who become the center of this horror story. Um, He was a family man, light-skinned African-American man who lived in Hollis. Um, He had a steady job as a machine operator at IBM. He'd never been in trouble uh, with the law. He'd been married, I think, divorced and then remarried, had a couple of kids no indication whatsoever that he had sort of murderous um, impulses. And um, come to find out, he had spent many nights out sort of trolling for a woman to assault. And he had had uh, a number of other assaults that had gone unsolved. And this is part of what happens when Kitty's murder is is revealed, um, is that people start making the links uh, between some of these unsolved murders and and Winston Mosley. So he was he was he was riding around looking for a woman alone. And he happened to 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 find Kate Kitty. Um, she, he follows her as she's driving probably very fast. And it's a fiat and it's early in the morning and she wants to get home. Um, and she probably doesn't notice him. We don't know this, but she finally does notice him when she gets to her apartment in Kew Gardens, um, which is right um, near a Long Island Railroad um, station at Kew Gardens. So she pulls into the parking lot where she always parked her car and, according to him, um, sees him watching her 
from his car. I want to pause here and say that the interesting thing about the whole 38 witnesses trope around this story is that there's really one witness, and that's Mosley. He's really the only one who could tell the story of what happened that night, right? Because there was no one else on the street, no one else that that saw him run after her after she she stopped her car and got out and started to run because she knew someone someone was watching her and it, it didn't feel right, started running up the street toward a local bar that was open late. That night it had closed early because mm. of fights. So he catches up to her and stabs her a couple of times and she starts screaming, of course. Well, a neighbor, this is the other part of the story that just doesn't make it into the received narrative. A neighbor lifts his his window and yells out, hey, you get out of here, leave her alone. And Mosley runs away. So by that time, though, Kitty, he stabs her in the back twice. So it probably affected her lung capacity. So she makes it around. He runs away, but he stays. He doesn't leave. He gets into his car. He changes his hat uh, to put on more of a disguise. He waits about 10 minutes or so. And in that time, she has made her way around the, the building and into the first open door these are two-story apartments right along the Long Island Railroad tracks into the first open door, which has a small vestibule, and there she collapses. So he comes back after about 10 minutes and start, looks in the parking lot and looks in um, at, at the vestibule and sees her, opens the door and proceeds to um, attack her again. And this time he um, attempted to rape her, um, was unable to. She's still crying and and yelling, but her capacity is much less. Um, He, again, he's the eyewitness here. He says he thought he saw someone at the top of the stairs um, begin to open their door and then close it quickly. So we don't know whether um, someone had seen what was going on. And just kind of freaked out at at, at the sight of it, um, but we do know that 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 person called another neighbor and um, called the police. So, and that's you know Mosley runs off, um, and um, the neighbor that the person at the top of the stairs called comes to Kitty immediately and and cradles her in her arms. Uh, while they're waiting for the police and the ambulance, and Kitty dies on the way to the hospital. So this notion that there was this sort of callous, no, nobody caring, um, hearing screams and doing nothing is just wrong from 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 the jump. Yeah. So right after the murder, what is the police's response to the crime and and how did the neighbors and the community of Kew Gardens react when they find out that someone has been murdered right away yeah so this is a pretty close-knit um part of Kew Gardens as I said these are probably about eight two-story apartments um you enter at the vestibule level and you go up to a small living room and a bedroom, maybe two on some of them, but there weren't that many. So this little enclave of, of 
of neighbors knew one another. They knew Katie, Kitty. They knew her uh, roommate and lover, Marianne. Um, they'd helped her move in. I mean, they saw them on the street. So the word spread rapidly that, that Kitty had been killed. Um, the woman who um, held her in her arms um, actually went to the hospital um, and and um, tried to to remain there as long as she could. And she then was the person who let the other neighbors, including Mary Ann, Kitty's partner, know what had happened. Um, so when the police came around um, the next day, um, they talked to these people who told them what they knew. Um, some people, and again, this is a mix of folks in this particular building. Some are young, as Kitty and Marianne were. Some were older. Some were immigrants whose command of English wasn't real good. Some people were um, not at home. Um, and some people just didn't trust the police. Um, the The police in, in Kew Gardens at that time um, were, uh, was a very small um, outfit. It was a, it was a small um, group of, of officers who were trying to do this work. Um, and they became very frustrated when they weren't getting what they needed as quickly as they needed it. Now, the other thing that, that I certainly never put together until I started doing my research was there was no 911. So even when the first neighbor lifted his, his window and yelled at Mosley, and then called the police, it took a long time to get through. You had to know exactly the right number of the particular precinct. There was no central way. And it was 3.30 in the morning. So maybe there was somebody on, maybe not. But the police response um, was certainly less than it would be today and probably less than it should have been um, then. So the response was slow. And I think that people were both upset traumatized. They had just had this horrible thing happen in this very intimate uh, neighborhood um, and and probably didn't know what to make of it and probably hadn't seen anything. So when they would say that to, to the police officers, the police officers got more and more frustrated because ah. they couldn't put the pieces together. They didn't know who this person was, where he had come from, where he had gone or anything. So I think that there were a lot of complicating factors in terms of, of how the police then reported out what the neighbors, you know, did or didn't help them with. So two weeks after the crime happens, New York Times runs an article written by Martin Gansberg uh, that has a major impact on this case. What did it say and how did it misconstrue the uh, events that you described earlier? Right, right. Well, let's start with the 38, right? 38 here, I don't call. The 38 comes from, and it kept shifting over time. Sometimes it was 27, sometimes it was 34. The 38 were the names of the people that the police had been able to ascertain lived in this particular enclave in this in this neighborhood. Now, remember, there's the small sort of two-story apartments, but directly across the street, there's sort of a mid-level apartment with many more um, uh, neighbors in it. Down the street, there's another mid-level, mid mid-rise. So the 38 came from the number of 
doors they knocked on and the number of people that they attempted to um, get to talk to them about what they knew. Uh, and so it, the, the idea that it sort of got transformed into sort of literally people like looking out their windows, all, thir- all three dozen plus of them, and watching somebody get killed, which is what the Gansberg story sort of evokes, right? That there's this more than three dozen people knew someone, a woman was being murdered and did not help her. That's what that's what the takeaway from the Gansberg story was. Um, they even attempted um, in the Times, to be fair, to show the layout of the parking lot where she parked, the layout of the apartments, etc. But I think all that that served to do was to sort of further heighten this idea that you couldn't count on anybody, even anybody who lived next door, right, to help you because that was the slant and the. The impetus, right, for the Times to even bother, because initially, like a day or two later, it was on page 28. It was a, it was not even more than a graph story. It was really not treated seriously at all. But A.M. Rosenthal, who's just been named the, the Metropolitan Editor and just returned from Eastern Europe, um, had done what any good guy newspaper guy would do is he starts to make you know his connections with the power brokers and the opinion makers and the knowledgeable people so he sets up a meeting with the police commissioner in new york who says to him hey you ought to check out this murder in queens it's one for the books so it's the police commissioner hearing complaints from the local precinct folks who says we didn't get what we needed from this and we don't know what's going on over there. So maybe you should make it, make a story of it basically. So there's, there's all these complicating factors, right? Yes. The, other, the other interesting thing, and, and this is, of course, isn't in Gansberg's story at all. I don't believe is that a few days later, Mosley is caught because neighbors in another part of Queens, in Corona, also an Italian-American area, catch him burglarizing, trying to burglarize a house. And they disable his car so he can't leave, call the police. The police catch him. They see that maybe he's similar to the guy that they've heard a description of in the Kitty Genovese case, and he readily admits to it. So the story could have been neighbors catch murderer of Kitty Genovese less than a week later. It wasn't the, right? So the the idea that the um, neighborhood and the particular neighbors should come under such criticism and opprobrium for decades is the other thing that made me think, I got to write this story. I got to find out if this really happened the way we've all learned that it did. Yeah. um, So so there was an excerpt I read um, that uh, you said something that uh, really struck me in this excerpt. And it it, it was uh, Genovese. uh, Genovese was a reminder that despite the changes brought about by the 1960s social movements, freedom could have devastating consequences. Now, my question to you is, why did the authorities, why does the media just run with this new narrative? Yeah, yeah. 
That's a great question. And it's one that I have attempted to answer from a number of different angles. And I'm still not quite satisfied that I know all of the rationale and all the reasons for it. One of the things I I did to try to answer it was to take a deep dive into Abe Rosenthal's motivations, because he's the controlling factor here. He is the person who assigns the story. He's the person that gets the tip from the commissioner. He's the person who makes it into what it became. He About a month or so after the um, first big front page article, um, he writes a a Sunday uh, opinion piece about apathy. And it also went viral and people started talking apathy. Oh my God, look what's happening to us. Then by June, right, this is all happening in March, he's written his first book and it's called 38 Witnesses. So he has found a uh, a trope, I think, mm. that spoke to, to New Yorkers' fears, anxieties, um, questions about what was happening around them. And we can get into some of what I think those happenings were. Um, and it caught fire. Um, and it became the only thing that people talked about for, for quite some time. Yeah, I, I I would like to get into those happenings. Why were New Yorkers at the time so, uh, I guess, affected by by this story? So the whole trope of apathy and not taking responsibility for someone when they're in trouble, right? Um is kind of put up against the um, upheavals that are happening around race, right, around gender. There have been a number, of course, the 1963 March on Washington, massive, just a few months earlier, right? That summer, there's a police shooting of um, uh, a young Black uh, man in in, um, Manhattan that caused protests. In the summer of 64, it's really the one of the first summers of major, major upheaval and uprisings, right? Where people have had it with, um, with race discrimination, segregation in housing, school, jobs, you name it. So there's that. That's going on. And it's having this, this impact on everyone, um, both people who are, are joining the movements and people who are shying away from them and are frightened by them and frightened by what's what's happening. And Rosenthal uses this to make um, an argument that what that what really matters is personal connection, is personal responsibility, not collective action. So he's he becomes an almost an apostle of denigrating um, organizing and community activism. And instead is saying it really matters what, what you do one-on-one. That's that's the real test of whether we as a society are going to hang together. Well, that's counter to, to the currents of the social movements of the time, right? So I think, and 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 you probably you may have seen this if if you checked out some of my writing, I think that coming back from Eastern Europe. And witnessing the horrors of what had happened, he one of his most compelling pieces was from Auschwitz. And he is writing about the good German 
who who turns their head away from evil and and does not help you know make it stop does not help stop this this onslaught he writes about auschwitz being turned into um, a park, almost a place of amusement, and how disturbing it is um, that it's happening that rapidly. I think that can't be divorced from him coming back to New York, New York City after a decade away, and seeing all this upheaval, all these all these challenges to norms around housing and schooling, etc., and and not quite quite knowing what to what to make of it. So he goes back to. We are responsible one for another, not in a group, not as part of a group. So that's one possible explanation. Frankly, I had hoped to to ask him why, but he died before I could really talk to him. So unfortunately, I don't I don't have a great answer to that question. I can only tell you from his writings and from what he talked to other people about his the interviews he gave. Um that it was very much on his mind, this sort of personal responsibility versus collective action. And he saw those as pitted against one another rather than complementary, which, yeah. So uh, I finally, I have one last question. Um, and it's something we ask all of our guest experts, but uh, this time I think it's kind of a double question. <laughs> so, at the end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the Kitty Genovese murder slash the portrayal in the media and, and the bystander apathy theory that came out of it. Who or what would that be? Yeah, I, I love that question. It's, I've not been asked that by anyone else. Oh. And I love that you asked <laughs> it. It's a great question. And I've thought about it a bit since we arranged this, I think there are two, there are two blames that can be leveled, right? One is on her, the murderer, um, who took her life, uh, for no, in, in a horrible, horrible way. Um, and had, and had also, and this doesn't get hardly any attention, had also done a, almost a dress rehearsal one week earlier by attacking and killing and setting on fire a black woman in another part of Queens. Wow. And, and that, that didn't even make the papers really. It, it, it was just ignored. So there you go. Right. I think the other is the media. Um, I think the other blame falls on the media that's both in terms of promoting a narrative that really demonized a whole a whole neighborhood, you know, for years and maybe still. You hear Kew Gardens and you think people that don't respond when someone's in trouble, right? People that that don't can't be bothered. People that won't open their windows. Um, it demonized a whole group of people, and and it that was wrong. But the fact that the that the um, trope continues that the message of apathy as this reason why kitty was killed continues to this day despite so many of us trying to say no 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 that's not the way it was is really is really a deeper question about why would we need to continue to believe that 
why would we need to continue to believe that we can't count on people to help us when in fact we now know that people did <laughs> they did come to her aid as much as they mm. could right it's almost like a propaganda <laughs> of fear yeah that is yeah. continued I think yes. so. I think so. I think that's exactly right. Now, my question for you. Oh. What made you interested in this story? You know, I lived in New York City from the age of 18 to 27. So it would have been around uh -huh. the same wow. years that uh, Kitty would have been alone as a young adult exploring the city. And... I one of my biggest fears while I was living in the city was to potentially being a victim of a crime. Uh, I think that crosses every woman's mind. Yep, all the time. Who lives in New York City alone without family. Yep. So I think that's what drew me to her. Really. How did you find out about it? I had we had a listener recommend and uh, I had heard about it. I had heard about bystander apathy. Yeah, yeah. And one of the, uh, and, and my, in the retelling of it, uh, you know, as, as things change, what I took out of it was if I was ever in a, a, a victim of a crime or being assaulted, yell fire. I think perhaps this is something that has come out of <laughs> it. Out of so people right. <laughs> don't, don't scream for help, scream right. for scream fire. fire. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's in the zeitgeist, and we yeah. we don't even know why. Yeah. We don't know where it came from. But we do. We do. We do know where it came from. And what's interesting is, you know, even the even Rosenthal and the Times eventually had to step back from the story and issue updates and corrections, um, and. And that's good. And I'm glad that it happened. And then there were there were concrete results. 911. The 911 yes. system is a direct result of a crime like this getting the kind of um, uh, publicity that it did. Right. Um, so did research into bystander um, syndromes and how people act one way as a group versus as individuals. All that kind of really important um, research. Um, Neighborhood Watch programs. Um, all of that came after Kitty. So, you know, do I wish she was still with us? Yes. Um, her her family certainly does. Her friends certainly do. Uh, her brother, as you probably know, went off to Vietnam. Yes. Amazing man. When yeah. when Winston Mosley died um, in in 2016, Bill Genovese published in the New York Times uh, condolences to his family. This man is remarkable. And, and if you haven't yet seen the film, The Witness. I have. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And he yeah. is every bit as wonderful in person. He's just uh, uh, a remarkable, remarkable man. So there are some positive things that unfortunately came out of this crime. Well, Marcy, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today and helping us better understand this very important case. Anytime. Thank you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. I don't you wish Marcy was your teacher? Yeah, I love Marcy. <laughs> yeah, she was excellent. I listened to her for hours. Just <laughs> Yeah. No, it was it was it was great. And I missed this. Original recording of this episode, but mm. this is a fascinating one. Yeah, um, and I would definitely echo what uh, Professor Gallo said, which was to watch the movie The Witness, which was incredible documentary. Um, yeah, just really, really good and complicated subject, obviously, but um, yeah, really makes you. Um, it just it just made you think about oh god, this those journalists just really. Oh, I get under my skin, yeah. those guys. <laughs> I think what the most fascinating takeaway for me about this is I was tr- totally hoodwinked. Like I had a complete false narrative yeah. about what this story was. I was, I believed the trope. Like I, you know, because I kind of heard it, uh, you know, word of mouth. I, mm-hmm. the story for me was this person was murdered and no one did anything. And it was such like an uproar. And it's really fascinating to dig deeper and realize the actual truth of the story mm-hmm. and how um, unfair it is to the actual community of Kew Gardens who live that, you know? Yes. I, you know, as someone who is alarmed, is an alarmist, this is the kind of story that will make, it will get me agitated, mm. you know? <laughs> um, and it will make me, you know, make and I don't know I don't know if choices is the right word but decisions similar to uh the uh her brother in the documentary the witness who explains that it you know feeling like nobody helped a sister and the idea that nobody helped a sister really uh changed the course of his life made him right. make a lot of decisions based on that fact and right. he he did go to Vietnam he was uh injured in Vietnam and uh and you know for me it's like i i've probably made a lot of decisions in my life just being like well no one's going to care about right. me if something bad happens so i have to be prepared and that will send me in a spiral so it, it's it's just good to you know get the real narrative out there at least for someone like yeah. me 
to be like, calm down. <laughs> yeah. And, and I really appreciated Marcy's question. Like, why do we continue to believe in that trope? Like, why would we want to believe that no one would help us when we need help? And I think it's really important because there's already enough conflict, you know, or like divided enough already without like believing in like a trope that if we fall down, like no one's going to like try and pick us up or help us because that's only going to widen the divide. Right. So like if there's the more you can focus on that community and like kind of lifting each other up, I feel like that's the kind of world that I would like to live in or hope that we can all live in. Yes. Yeah. And also we can't help but be aware of, or I can't help but be aware of the fact that we we're on a uh, podcast called The Alarmist, where we mm. on a weekly basis talk about um, the our greatest fears, what could go right. wrong, um, and how to sort of be aware of um, these things in day to day life. Um, I think as an exercise, it's important, right, to have that sort of. Um, survivalist survival like mentality, sure. right? Have, right. Have it logged away. Logged, in your brain. logged away. Exactly. Um, but you know, there's something insidious about um the uh Abe Rosenthal, the the uh, editor, who mm. uh, you know. The article came out. It got popular. Obviously, you know, he tapped into something. So then he wrote the opinion piece about it. Then he wrote a a book about it. And it really just felt like they were surfing a wave of of interest, of public interest, right? right? And they were just less interested in, you know, what was a horrific event and the truth of what happened that night and sort of more interested in sort of, um, their own kind of careers and reputations and sort of this this movement that was happening on sort of the academic level. Journalism is such an interesting thing because you have to walk the line of reporting what's out there, the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. But we also have to remember that it's a business as well. Right. And yeah. they're in the business of selling newspapers. Mm-hmm. And it's possibly to be unbiased. And in fact, the choosing to discuss a news event is is a almost a political decision in and of itself, right? I mean, as um, Professor uh, Gallo mentioned, uh, Mosley had just committed a murder um of a black woman right. in, in right, right. i think it was in a, uh, corona a week earlier in corona yeah and, and again it's headlines right it was right, a spot, right. it was a great headline right, right. and it was uh <laughs> it's it, was it changed so much about our society yeah. it got it got us the nine the nine one one and neighborhood yeah Washington. so there was stuff. like yeah like marcy said there was good stuff that sadly came out of it now, Clayton, what did we end up sending to the Alarmist Jail? And uh, what did we end up slapping? Well, we had three for this one. We we, yeah. we did send Winston Mosley to jail. And right. we gave a big slap to a lack of alarmism with a backhand <laughs> to Abe Rosenthal, the New York Times editor. Right. Because we felt like he obviously had a big impact on this story. And, I, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this is like a real one-of-a-kind alarmist episode. I feel like the majority, if not all of the things we've talked about are like major war, political or freak accidents, you know, like 
lack of maintenance like a lot of things are yeah you know (laughs) i love maintenance but it's not like this there's a real interpersonal you know element to this Mm -hmm. it's not like some dictator making calls that results in you know tragedy it's like there's something really personal about this which i feel like at least for me it's like resonating in a different way from previous disasters or catastrophes yeah so i think we could probably let go of a lack of alarmism, right? And I think that was just us still questioning, is it possible that nobody helped, right? Right. It's like we're still hanging on to the trope of that. Yeah. And it's hard to let go of. Uh, There were some moments, you know, the, the the man at the top of the stairs who peeks out or the person who peeks from the top of the stairs. That is alarming to me. You know, Mm -hmm. but it was it's there's a difference between an entire community not Mm. caring and uh, one person at the top of the stairs who did not know what to do in the moment of, uh, you know, would it have been the same way we would have reacted? Hard to tell. Hard hard to know what how you will react until it happens to you. And I hope it never happens to you. So do we give a big slap then to Abe? Do we do we get rid of the backhand? And just I give like him the full slap? I like what Marcy said. I like the media, and okay. I think uh, I think with that the backhand stays with Abe. Okay. <laughs> so no big no big slap at all for this. Uh yes the the big slap is going to the media. Oh to the media. I see, yes I see. we're Sorry. we're gonna the the actual murderer we are going to send to the alarmist jail for the murder right. Right, and so we're um, rolling Abe into the media writ large. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, I guess I call it, right? Uh, hey, media, you're getting the big slap. Got it. And there you have it. So we didn't, um, not not a huge amount changed mm-hmm. from our initial episode. Um, no. Just more, I think we got a little more specific, which is always yes, good. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, and thank you to Marcy for uh, bringing so much clarity to uh, uh, an, uh, you know, a story that has been, has withstood time, but has maybe been inaccurate. Yes, yeah. <laughs> In yeah. Its... M- mistold? Mistold? <laughs> <Or> misunderstood? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you to Professor Gallo. And stay tuned because next week we are going to be discussing the Thanksgiving menu. Erios. Powered by ACAST.